The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. While director Sergio Leone was refining his great satire of old-fashioned westerns, making his so-called spaghetti westerns famous in the process, composer Ennio Morricone was redefining the possibilities of film music. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is part two of our exploration of the Old West. That is, the Old West via exterior shot in Almeria, Spain, and interior shot at a film studio in Rome, Italy, via the spaghetti westerns of director Sergio Leone, with the groundbreaking scores of composer Ennio Morricone. On the first episode, we discussed the history of this great director-composer collaboration and talked about their first film together, 1964's A Fistful of Dollars, starring Clint Eastwood as the man with no name, though sometimes he's referred to as Manco in the dialogue in one of its sequels. But that was just the first film in the so-called Man With No Name trilogy. At least that's how it was marketed to us. Both Leone and Morricone greatly refined and advanced their filmmaking techniques with the next two movies— which we'll be discussing in this episode. For a few dollars more in 1965, and the most famous of the trilogy, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, from 1966. Actor Clint Eastwood was asked by Sergio Leone to star in a sequel to A Fistful of Dollars, and at first, Eastwood said no, simply because he hadn't even seen the first film yet. It had yet to be released in America, so he hadn't even dubbed his lines. So Leone sent an Italian-language print of the movie to Eastwood in America, who screened it with friends and colleagues at the CBS Production Center. Though none of them spoke Italian, Leone's style and skill was so evident in the first film that Eastwood agreed to do the second. So let's talk basics about the sequel. For a few dollars more stars Clint Eastwood returning as a bounty hunter, though he's called a bounty killer in the script, similar to or the same as the one he played in A Fistful of Dollars. But this time, a second bounty killer named Colonel Mortimer, played by character actor Lee Van Cleef, gives Eastwood a bit of competition. Originally, uh, Sergio wanted to have Henry Fonda in Lee Van Cleef's part because he felt that I had a similarity to Fonda that would have been sort of a father-son mentor kind of situation. Uh, he couldn't get Henry Fonda, and at that time he couldn't get anybody. Nobody knew Sergio, and the the dollar pictures hadn't come out and been uh, as effective as they were a few months later than that. So he uh, goes to California, and he comes back with Lee Van Cleef. I said, oh, Lee Van Cleef, that's interesting. He always had a great face. And I used to see him around at Universal, 
years ago. He was sort of a well-known character actor, worked quite a bit. The two bounty killers are chasing the same bounties. Eventually, they decide to join forces to capture the biggest bounty of them all, a criminal named Indio, played by classically trained Italian theater actor Gian Maria Volante, who is by far the most villainous, over-the-top, nasty bad guy that you've ever seen in a Western. I mean, here with these spaghetti Westerns, these pictures, you have already done away with the idea of a morally righteous, clean-cut hero in your Western. Leone is almost giving us a modern, well, modern for the mid-1960s, commentary on the culture of the Old West by satirizing the heroes of Westerns. His heroes are not virtuous. They're paid killers. So already, our heroes have a bit of a dark edge. So, how does Leone go about making a villain in his sequel? By making Indio, Volante's bad guy, into more than just a murderer. As a profusely sweating, drugged-out madman, we see him murder his enemies, his friends, women, children, families, and more. In one scene, he kills the wife and child of the man who just put him in jail just before killing him. In another, a flashback that's a huge part of the plot, he breaks into a house, sees a husband and wife, shoots the husband dead, and has his way with the wife, who is so stricken with grief that she shoots herself. Ugh! He's so repugnant that as audience members, we just want him gone. And we want our morally ambiguous bounty killers to just take care of it. For a few dollars more is really where Leone's style starts to emerge. Classic trademarks like the close-ups in Fistful are brought in even tighter. The way shots are framed with faces is such a fresh look, evident in the scene where the bandits are casing the bank at El Paso. The storytelling gets longer, more relaxed, and the music becomes almost twice as important as it was before. So much so that Morricone wrote much of his music, at least for the last film, before the movie was even shot. But more on that later. With the stage set, let's talk about Morricone's music and start with, at first, a similarity between Fistful and A Few Dollars More. Both films feature that trademark Leone Morricone use of musical motif, almost like a brief, lightning-fast signature or flutter. In Fistful, every time Eastwood takes action, we hear this. Almost like this pan flute, or maybe it's an ocarina upon second listen, is imitating the call of a bald eagle out in the desert every time. Almost as if Eastwood's character is a personification of this hunter. But now this time, in For a Few Dollars More, he is represented with a pan flute, playing this figure. It's interesting that it's a softer figure than what we had in the last film. Perhaps to paint the man with no name as the most relatable character in this harsh environment. Mortimer, Van Cleef's bounty killer character, also has a signature. A disruptive, almost comedic twang of a mouth harp. It's interesting because Mortimer is such a cool character, dressed in all black, mistaken as a priest at first, but as really a deadly killer with a whole arsenal of very large guns. Perhaps this musical twang is meant to soften his toughness and make him more approachable, less threatening, and to carefully establish that he will ultimately not be the bad guy. These two instruments, the pan flute and the mouth harp, which by the way is also sometimes called a jaw harp, a Jew's harp, among endless lists of names as it's been around for hundreds of years. Anyway, the mouth harp can be heard in the movie's opening music along with the pan flute. Let's take a listen. The movie opens with a wide vista, and way off in the distance, 
we see some man riding toward us slowly on a horse. We also hear someone off camera that we can't see humming happily away, somewhat casual and almost content. And what's that we hear him doing? Oh, he's loading a gun, a rifle. And then, without much thought, he fires and kills the unknown man on the horse from a very long ways away. We immediately hear the mouth harp kick off our main whistled theme. There's the pan flute. The theme grows with background chorus, Fender guitar, and that wonderful galloping rhythm. So, when we see Mortimer and his actions accompanied by the mouth harp, we know that it was him at the top of the movie killing to collect a reward. Later, when Eastwood enters, we're given the pan flute. Our two heroes have clear musical signatures that will help us track their movement through the story. And the emotional tone of each character has already been laid out for us thanks to the emotional tone of each respective instrument. These two bounty killers are a satirical non-threat to us as the audience. They may actually turn out to even be our heroes. But then there's Indio, the villain. The first time we're introduced to him is when his gang is going to bust him out of prison. We see a nighttime break-in, and we hear a soft melody played on a quiet organ and malleted instruments. It sounds like this. Later, it will be revealed as the melody of a pocket watch that Indio carries with him everywhere, which sounds like this. This melody is meant to inspire dread, doom, and gloom. In fact, it contains that famous musical word for death, the centuries-old melody, Dies Irae, Judgment Day. For more on Dies Irae, check out my episode titled Doom and Gloom, Music Has a Word for Death. The Dies Irae can be heard buried in the melody, but it's clearly built around it. Here's the melody. And here's the Dies Irae. Dies Irae, Dies Irae. Dies Irae, 
This pocket watch is playing out doom and gloom. It's playing out death. It's why for a few dollars more has the creepiest Western villain of all time. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. There are a couple of sound moments that I'd like to highlight. After Indio escapes from prison, we see him laughing maniacally as he lets one of the prison guards go free without killing him. Leone then immediately cuts to a wanted poster of Indio, with a rough drawing showing him doing a similar maniacal laugh. As this cut happens, we hear a musical stinger from Morricone. <laughs> Then, as the poster hangs outside, we get the stinger again when Clint Eastwood sees it. Then we get that stinger one more time as Mortimer sees it. Now, this time, listen closely to the stinger. There are ringing bells within the stinger, almost like a telephone is ringing. Our bounty killers are being called to action to provide a service. One of the more stylish, cutting-edge sound moments then takes place when Mortimer studies this bounty poster, the poster for Indio, which is offering a whopping $10,000 in cash to bring him in, dead or alive. But the following sequence hints that for Mortimer, the picture of Indio on the poster holds perhaps even more significance than just money. As Mortimer studies it with a piercing glance, the camera cuts quickly between the two faces, and we hear gunshots on top of each cut, one distinctive gun belonging to Indio, and the other very distinctive gun belonging to our new hero, Mortimer. With each cut, the camera is even closer to each respective face. Closer. 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 Now I'll wrap it back and forth. It's a cool foreshadowing moment that we get with Mortimer. Interesting that we didn't get it for Eastwood, Perhaps to Mortimer, this job has a special significance. Another great, almost cartoonish, satirical sound editing moment happens when our two bounty killers first size each other up at night in the street. First, Clint Eastwood, or Manco, as he's called in this script, steps on Mortimer's boot and dirties it. Mortimer, played by Lee Van Cleef, does the same to Eastwood's boot. Eastwood's response? He punches him square in the face, knocking Mortimer and his black hat to the ground. Mortimer grins and slowly gets up, then reaches down to grab his hat off the ground. Before he can, Eastwood draws and shoots the hat down the street about 10 feet or so. Again, Mortimer grins, slowly walks over to his hat and tries to pick it up again. And again, Eastwood fires and sends the hat back another 10 feet. This game goes on several times, Eastwood's pushing the hat back further and further down the street. And each time, Mortimer grins until finally, the hat is so far away from Eastwood that when Eastwood fires at it, the bullet falls short by about a foot. He's out of range. He tries again with no luck. Mortimer slowly picks up his hat, puts it on his head, and draws a huge gun with a very long barrel. He aims it at Eastwood slowly and blows his hat right off of his head. Listen to how different that gunshot is. Leone and his sound editors have given Mortimer a very unique sounding pistol. As the hat flies in the air, Mortimer juggles the hat in the air with continuous shots. 
as it gets higher and farther away. Finally, it's so far away that Mortimer stops shooting. We see Eastwood grimacing in stubborn amazement, and we hear this sound. That whistle is like a bomb dropping, and it represents the hat falling out of the sky, followed by a distant, muted thud. Pretty inventive and stylish sound editing and sound storytelling, especially for a Western in 1965. But let's get back to the music and to our villain, Indio. He and his gang are now hiding out in a church. The scene opens on the pocket watch playing those chimes. A child is crying in the background. He closes the watch and the music stops. So, we've established that the theme is heard by the characters as well. This chime music is in-world, and Indio listens to it constantly. It's the sound of his victim's suffering throughout the movie, and it's a link in his chain of madness. That child that was crying in the background is part of a family of a bounty hunter that had turned Indio in. It's why he was in jail. The man and his family have been captured by this gang, and the family is taken outside and are killed off-camera. It's horrible, I'm not going to play it. But just know that Indio, the character in World, actually scores the scene himself with the music from the pocket watch. Monster. Now, I will play what happens next, though. The pistol duel between Indio and the unfortunate unknown bounty killer who is about to meet his fate. Indio gives the bounty killer a gun. He unties him, and he says this. When you hear the music finish begin, let's start. So the music is playing a central role in the story here. What follows is a very long, stylish, drawn-out moment of tension. It's what has become a Leone Morricone trademark. The men just stare at each other over this music. Sweating like crazy, with the outmatched bounty killer shaking. And suddenly, a gothic pipe organ. killer is almost crying now, lip quivering. Indio is totally still. Reaction shots from his gang members. Close up, close up, close up. Now, back to the watch. Back to the reality in the room. The music stops, and bang. Okay, a few things to notice musically here. Let's start with that heavy guitar. Here's a quote from Morricone's guitarist, who also provided the whistling on the scores. Molto rigoroso, cercava di scoprire dei suoni, questa chitarra che doveva veramente diventare... Ennio wanted the guitar to be extremely dramatic. What he wanted was a very big sound. Molto grande. E siamo stati parecchio tempo lì a cercare di... I'd play normally. 
and he'd say, no, stronger. And now, let's talk about that pipe organ, that gothic sound of pure evil. This piece, by the way, is an obvious reference to a very famous piece for pipe organ by Johann Sebastian Bach, titled Toccata and Fugue in D minor. You know it. It goes like this. famous gothic-sounding religious piece. You know, it reminds me of a joke I saw online. So we say, nobody can play heavy metal on a pipe organ. Bach says, halt mein Bier. Anyway, using this pipe organ sound in the middle of this duel between a broken man who's lost his family, who knows he's going to die, and Indio, the cold killer, cutting back and forth with every character in the room being perfectly still, this music drives home the fact that Indio is, in fact, the devil. That's how far Leone goes stylistically here with this big villain movie. There are other things to note about this movie's music as well, such as the first appearance of a melody that will ultimately reveal itself fully in the next movie a melody that appears whenever the plot revolves heavily around money. We hear that melody quite a bit when the bandits are about to rob the bank at El Paso, and we'll hear a lot more of it in the climax of our final film, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. At the end of this film, for a few dollars more, the pocket watch chimes come into play yet again. Remember how I mentioned that couple from Indio's flashback? How he murdered the husband and brutally assaulted the wife? These watches contain pictures of their faces. They were stolen from that couple. Indio kept the watch with her face and obsessed over it for years. But the other watch? Well, it was with Mortimer. In the end duel, Manco plays the music from the other watch to give Mortimer a chance to pick up his gun. The music once again goes from diegetic to film score in the following cue.
Indio, our devil-in-the-flesh villain, has been killed. Turns out Mortimer was the brother of Carillon, Indio's victim with the pocket watch, who killed herself. So Mortimer refuses the reward, and Mando, I mean Manco, rides off into the sunset with all of the bounties himself, making him very rich. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. For a few dollars more is often overlooked, but I love its tight length and its gothic film score in a Western setting. But now, in 1966, Morricone took his musical art form to a whole new level with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Clint Eastwood is back. This time he's called Blondie in the script. He's the good guy in this movie, our hero. Lee Van Cleef is back, but not as the same character. He's not Colonel Mortimer anymore, the retired military officer turned bounty killer. He's a different bounty killer called Angel Eyes in the script. He's more bloodthirsty. And then there's character actor Eli Wallach, who had starred as Calvera in 1960's The Magnificent Seven, which, by the way, was also based on a Kurosawa movie, The Seven Samurai. And Eli Wallach oftentimes steals the movie completely as his character, Tuco, or The Ugly. The movie follows these three characters against the backdrop of the American Civil War. At the top of the movie, we learn that there was a cash box full of gold that went missing. And now the whole movie is a search for treasure, for the ecstasy of gold. The real villain of this movie is the harsh reality of the Old West itself. The cold reality of war, as our characters witness the North and South in huge epic battles. This, by the way, is by far Leone's biggest budget and most grandiose film to date. It's also about the heartless pursuit of money in the face of so much death and tragedy. There's still a ton of style, a ton of dark humor, and a ton of violence. Literally, as this is the longest movie of the three, clocking in at a whopping 177 minutes, with the extended English language version at 183 minutes. Remember how I mentioned that Morricone wrote music in advance before the picture was even completed? Well, not only did Sergio Leone blast Morricone's music on set for his actors to get into the mood while filming the good, the bad, and the ugly, but he often cut scenes in the editing room to the music, which is wonderful. It's somewhat commonplace today, especially after the evolution of music videos and MTV in the 1980s, but it was groundbreaking back then. The result is a stylish, tense exercise that feels like a slow burn, and is another Leone Morricone trademark. I played you the first example of it in For a Few Dollars More, the gothic shootout in the church, as well as the circular three-way shootout at the end. Man, there are other great moments in both of these films that are worth checking out. But anyway, in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, this practice that I'm talking about, cutting to music, is taken to a master's level. More on it as we get to the end of the film. But it does help explain why Leone's runtimes get longer as the trilogy progresses. Each new film is longer than the last. So... The music to the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have to talk about the main theme of the movie, one of the most famous movie themes of all time for any movie. As famous as the murder music in Psycho or the romantic melodies of Casablanca, this avant-garde music is pure Morricone and immediately gives the film its harsh, removed sense of irony, letting us know that we're in for a ride that is deeply lacking any romanticism or sentimentality.
With just a yodeling vocal, a pan flute and harmonica, Morricone created a highly unusual but immediately recognizable motif for the world of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Morricone has said that it is a musical imitation of a howling coyote in the desert. And sure enough, the first shot following the opening musical credits, we hear a coyote howl not once, but twice. And then we actually see one walking through the frame. This is where Morricone got his inspiration. You know, that melody only contains two notes, a perfect fourth. Only it kind of bends down in pitch a little bit, like a coyote. It's so recognizable, so succinct, a genius stroke by Morricone. And in fact, this theme was covered by artist Hugo Montenegro and his orchestra and became a huge hit, reaching all the way to number two on the Billboard Pop Single Charts in 1968. to the film score. The main coyote theme is treated differently when expressed for each character. When we see Blondie, Clint Eastwood's character, we hear the theme on a pan flute. When we see Angel Eyes, the bad, Lee Van Cleef's character, it's played with a deeper flute. And when it's played over Tuco, the ugly, we hear it with the human voice like this. Leone's use of signature, lightning-fast motifs that accompany characters, which we've discussed in the past two films, is again hard at work in this last film. And in fact, this time, the signature is the main melody of the film. There's some other great moments in the film worth mentioning, of course. At one point, Tuco forces our good hero, Blondie, to walk 100 miles in the desert. As he does so, we hear just a hint of the good old Dies Irae. There seems to be a motif of leaving people to die of exposure and dehydration running throughout this film. There it is. And of course, we can't have a discussion about the good, the bad, and the ugly without talking about the Civil War. War in this film is downright sad. It's coming to an end, so all we see are just wounded soldiers everywhere. There's a certain pointlessness to it all. Where we pick up with the war, everyone knows that the South is going to lose, and we see tragic image after tragic image of human lives wasted. Even Blondie Clint Eastwood, when looking at the soldiers in the war, says, quote, 
I've never seen so many men wasted so badly, end quote. Here is where we seem to come to the heart of Leone's true feelings about the Old West and about war, about an environment where violence and money are a way of life and human lives are cheap. Perhaps this is Leone's timely 1966 political expression, this anti-war sentiment that was really huge in America as the Vietnam War protests started in 1964. In fact, it seems that the images of wounded soldiers and tragic battles are the only times that Leone becomes somewhat sentimental in all of these films. I'll give you a couple of musical examples. When Angel Eyes, aka The Bad, sees a Confederate base blown to bits and the wounded men inside, the music becomes a bit sorrowful. stay typical of Leone and Morricone. And later, when Tuco the Ugly takes Blondie the Good to the mission in order to be healed, the music is tragic yet again. sentimental or sorrowful feeling doesn't come without irony and satirical commentary. Probably the most famous war music in all of the good, the bad, and the ugly is a song. It's called The Story of a Soldier, which is sung by Confederate prisoners at a Yankee prisoner of war camp in Batterville. The lyrics, written by Tommy Connor, go like this. Quote, Bugles are calling from prairie to shore. Sign up and fall in and march off to war. Blue grass and cotton burnt and forgotten. All hope seems gone, so soldier march on to die." End quote. somber depiction of war and violence. But lest we think that the message is going to make us shed a tear, Leone crosscuts this song with Tuco being tortured by angel eyes, just being beaten to a pulp. All we can do is take these two competing sentiments in with a strong sense of detachment.
This whole movie is basically about chasing treasure in a buried cemetery, like I said. Finally, at the end of the movie, when Tuco makes it to the cemetery and starts excitedly and frantically searching for the grave where he's been told the gold is buried, we hear one of the most famous film score cues of all time from this movie, second only to the coyote howl, which is the main theme of the film. This cue is called The Ecstasy of Gold, and it contains that gold melody that we first heard in For a Few Dollars More. It also captures the madness and greed of Tuco, and his glee, his quest for gold, is given an almost Greek chorus tragedy. Let's hear it. Here we see Tuco running past endless graves, which appear to just spin in front of the camera. Tuco finds the grave, Blondie appears and throws him a shovel. For the first time, we see Clint Eastwood in the same costume he wore in the previous two films. You know, there's been speculation as to whether or not Eastwood is actually the same character in all of these three films, or whether he's just wearing the same costume and having that same cool Eastwood mannerism. Other than that same costume and those Eastwood mannerisms, there's no indication that these characters are actually the same from film to film. After all, Jean Maria Volante, who played Indio in For a Few Dollars More, was also the feared Ramon Rojo from Fistful of Dollars. And Lee Van Cleef clearly is not the same character in The Good, the Bad, the Ugly as he was in For a Few Dollars More. So while this was marketed as a trilogy, it feels more like variations on a theme. Clint Eastwood is continually Leone's idea of an old West antihero, and not necessarily the same character from film to film. But back to the movie. Here at the end. Angel Eyes, the bad, catches up to Tuco and Blondie, and the three of them duel over the treasure. A three-way duel that is stretched out beyond belief. It's literally like a 1966 music video of a Western duel. It's amazing in its tension, made solely by cleverly editing the shots to Morricone's music. Let's take a listen. Literally, we're just seeing close-ups on men's faces.
close-ups of their guns on their belts, with their fingers twitching closely by. We see wide shots here and there as well. intensifies, the close-ups get super close. Now, just on the eyes. The cutting gets faster, faster, more intense. And then finally, Blondie shoots the bad angel eyes. And Tuco shoots no one. His pistol has secretly been unloaded by Blondie. Blondie collects Tuco and says the following line. You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. You dig. You dig. Now, was that a statement or a question? You dig? Yeah, I dig. These three spaghetti westerns, and even the films beyond them, like Once Upon a Time in the West, have had a tremendous stylistic impact on movies and the filmmakers coming up in the 1960s and 70s. They ushered in new possibilities for creativity. Here are just a few examples of these films' influence. One would be Clint Eastwood's first American Western film, Hang 'em High, from 1968. It certainly has elements of Leone Spaghetti Westerns. Director Quentin Tarantino has often incorporated the musical and visual styles of Spaghetti Westerns in his films. Kill Bill, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, with a great score by Marconi, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The Leone style has become part of Tarantino's overall style. And in the music world, arguably the biggest heavy metal band of all time, Metallica, uses the Ecstasy of Gold as their concert intro music. It's the cue that the band has walked out on stage to at every concert they've played since 1983. And for you Star Wars fans, the creation of Boba Fett is a direct homage to the man with no name, as is the creation of Han Solo. But even more recently, the music of Star Wars has paid tribute. This figure from A Fistful of Dollars, and this figure from For a Few Dollars More, 
can be identified as an influence on Rey's theme from Star Wars The Force Awakens, particularly the intro. A lone scavenger riding solo through the desert. And of course, the Mandalorian's music is directly influenced by Morricone's panpipes as well. The partnership of director Sergio Leone and composer Ennio Morricone changed more than just the Western genre. It changed popular culture itself. Thank you so much for your support of The Soundtrack Show, and thank you so much for all your social media posts and emails. I read every single one. Please send me an email at soundtrackshowpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media at soundtrackshowhsw on Facebook and Instagram or on Twitter at SoundtrackHSW. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at David W. Collins. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.